thank you, Ross. Uh, I'm super excited to be back home. Durban is my hometown where I was born and raised. Um, but I now live in Joburg, so there's not a lot of surf there, sadly. I was told that the Yakske River every now and then in flood has a little left. But uh, <laughs> I don't know if I want to get in there at all. But I'm um, super stoked to be here. Um, so I'm a mom of three boys. Uh, my biggest, Brendan, is here helping me sell. But I've got two little ones. They're seven and nine. And um, if you know, if you're a mom to boys, then you'll, you'll relate to what I'm talking about. But it was recently uh, Josh's birthday when he turned nine about a few weeks ago. And uh, he had a whole bunch of friends from his class come and they brought him lots of gifts. I think it was the idea of the end of year party and literally the whole class came. And so we were sitting there in the evening and he was opening up his presents. And I noticed that Levi, who's seven, was starting to feel more and more discouraged because he was like, man, like Josh got so many presents and I got nothing. And, um, and so Josh opens this one and it's a box of Le um, Lego and Levi loves Lego. And uh, so just out the blue, Josh kind of leans over and he says, hey, but you can have this because I know how much you love Lego. And as a mom, you're like, yes, you know, like, all my parenting is paid off, like I'm the bee's knees, I got this, you know, and I was so proud of this moment, and I was watching Levi, and he was grinning, and Josh was like, yeah, I'm the man, and I thought, I'm going to make a cup of tea, and I'm going to kind of just relish in this moment where the lion and the lamb are just enjoying each other. <laughs> I hadn't even turned the kettle on, and there was carnage. <laughs> How many of you relate? It feels like these kind of pockets of peace moments last like three seconds. And life can feel like that. It just feels like, like you know, these moments are fleeting. I call them, you know, these pockets of peace are like sucking the marrow out of life because that's all you're going to get. You know, you've got to just relish in those moments. And there are times where it feels like finally you've got your finances sorted. And you're like, oh, we can have a good month. And then you're like clutch on your car packs out. And you're like, no. Or like you've just, you've been training for an event and you've kind of managed to dodge COVID and any other, you know, kind of flu out there. And then the night before your race, some guy sneezes on you. And the next day you wake up with a raging temp. And you're like, no. And life can feel like it's just throwing these curveball triggers at you. And it's like you're living in this emotional distress. And it feels like there's injustices and you're just overwhelmed at the onslaught and you're angry because you've saved up for five years and finally booked your tickets to the UK. <laughs> and it's so easy to become weary and disheartened and angry and frustrated and depressed and tired. People are so emotionally tired of what feels like a never ending onslaught of distress. Even when it comes to admin, there's times where I'm like, is my admin list ever going to end? And finally you get to the end of it and then you get the stationary list for next year. And you're like, no. And you know what makes it worse? When you're in this space and you're just, Ur! and then you get those people that look like Buddy from the movie Elf, you know, with Will Ferrell. And they're like Ephesians 4, always be joyful in the Lord. And you want to punch them in the face. <laughs> Anybody relate? So how do we manage the space where life is full of tensions? How do we take scriptures like this that says rejoice always when all we want to do is hide under the blankets and hope that it will just go away? 
How do we not become bitter? How do we get better? How do we have joy and peace when there's so much tension? How do we shift from being victims to circumstances that are so often beyond our control to living victorious despite what's going on? How do we guard our minds? How do we guard our minds and guard our hearts? And so my, my sermon talk is called Two Lenses because we have the lens of tension and we have the lens of truth. And life can feel like a bit of an oxymoron. Someone once said, life is brutal. It's brutal and beautiful at the same time. And we know that hurt people hurt people. But we also know that healed people can help people. And the problem is that so many become fixated on the tension. It's all they can see. We're overwhelmed by this onslaught. And so when all we look at is the tension, we can't see anything else. And so many use their emotions of frustrations as they guard, and all they're feeling is angry. And so that produces all sorts of distorted conclusions. So when we zoom in on tensions, we will lose focus on truth. Now, I want to show you a quick little video, and in a sense, this video is going to show you, in a sense, what I hope to do through the sermon today, which is widening our view. And so, this video is a little picture, or it's actually a, a video of, a, of an image, but it's zoomed in, in a kind of most macro way. So, I want you to start off by considering what do you think this image is, is, is all about? What do you think it is? Anybody? An orange, good, good. Anybody else? What do you think this image is going to be of? Skin. Okay, let's see. Let's zoom out a little bit. Okay, stop. What do you think it is now? Huh? A virus. <laughs> Could be. Oil. Cool. Anybody else? <laughs> I want to know what they said. There was a lot of giggles there. Hey? Okay, let's zoom out a bit more. Okay, stop. What do you think it is? Bubbles. Maybe what the kitchen sink's going to look like after Christmas, the water. <laughs> okay, let's zoom out all the way. <laughs> Coffee. See, the reality is, is that when I'm so focused in on my stuff, I'm going to lose perspective of truth. I'm not going to see what the true picture is all about. And today I want to take you on a bit of a journey of what happens when we're so focused on the tensions that we lose perspective on truth. So I want, there's just two things I want you to walk away today with. One is understanding the problem of how we get stuck in these tensions and trials of life that we lose perspective, and what does it look like in terms of changing our lenses to truth. So the problem that I want to focus on, first of all, is that so often people allow tensions to become their truth. When all I see is the tension, that becomes, the, in a sense, the evidence around what the truth is in my life, and it leads to destructive living. And I'm going to zoom in on a story that we find in the Old Testament. There's a family that's going through a crazy drama. Any families dreading 
Christmas because you know it's always drama. <laughs> okay, so we've got a family here. And a little background. The story is found in Genesis 37 to 50. And Jacob's the dad, and he's got 12 sons. Okay, tension right there. Uh, I know as a mom of two boys that are close in age, I'm not a mom, I'm just a ref. It's, you know, I'm generally yellow carding and red carding them, okay? That's the way it goes. So imagine the tension with these guys. We've got Joseph. He's the second uh, youngest. Uh, I often wonder what his hand-me-downs must have looked like. <laughs> it's just like held together with kind of threads. Now, Joseph works for um, some of his, his older half-brothers, but he's not too wise because he often, he snitches on them to his dad about what they're doing business-wise. So not a great uh, you know, things to do, and it's not going to bring love and peace in your home if you're snitching. But then Jacob's parenting in the midst of this is super dodgy, because he shows favoritism to Joseph, to the point of even buying him this really cool coat. Maybe it's because of the bad hand-me-downs, I don't know. But he just shows incredible favoritism to Joseph, and it triggers a whole lot of tension, so we're going to look at the story, first of all, from the brothers' perspective. How did they interpret the tension of this family dynamic and what impact did it have on them? So Genesis 37 verse 4 says this, But his brothers hated Joseph because their father loved him more than the rest of them. They couldn't even say a kind word to him. Can you hear how loaded the scripture is with emotions. I mean, this is not like a, you know, this is my son whom I love. This is an incredible, tense space. Joseph is lavishly loved from his father, but his brothers aren't. And they're angry, and they're hurt, and they're feeling rejected because of bad parenting. Now, there's a whole lot of stuff that happens psychologically when we find ourselves in these kind of tense dynamics in life. And I want to just give you some tools for understanding what happens in these spaces, because if we don't understand what happens psychologically, it's really hard to change cycles. Now, I'm going to just kind of whiz through this. If you want to go deeper in some of these tools, come tomorrow night. But the first thing to understand, and this, this tool is, no, is known as the cognitive behavioral therapy tool. It's a great tool for growing self-awareness. People perish because of a lack of knowledge. They don't understand why they're thinking, feeling, and behaving the way you do. So hopefully this will give you some tools. So A stands for your activating event. Any trigger in your world, it could be dad showing favoritism, it could be somebody in your family you know is coming for Christmas that constantly belittles you or scapegoats you or uses you as the butt of all jokes, I don't know, it could be the fact that you have booked tickets to the UK and you're angry now because of obviously travel's been, whatever it is, any trigger that activates some kind of a negative emotion in your world, that's what the A stands for. B stands for your belief. It's the story you tell yourself about your activating event. You see, an event doesn't have a power, it doesn't have any power over you. It's the story you tell yourself about the event that ends up robbing you. And we're going to go into that in a bit more detail in a bit. See then is the consequent emotion of my belief. So if my dad's showing favoritism to my sibling, what is the story I tell myself? Well, what's wrong with me? There must be something wrong with me. It's going to produce negative emotions like uh, rejection or abandonment or just a sense of I'm not good enough. There's something wrong. When I'm feeling negative emotions, it's going to dictate to me my behavior. 
Now, all behavior is driven by a need to connect or self-protect. And my behavior can either be constructive or destructive. But if I'm feeling negative emotions, it's very easy to allow what I feel, tension, to drive my behavior destructively. We react. The way I react then has an effect on my world around me. And when I see this in the counseling room all the time, people come in because there's stuff going on in their world, the story they tell themselves is negative, it produces all sorts of negative emotions, they get angry, they react, the effect of their behavior is not good on their world around them, and they get caught in these cycles. Now, for the sake of today, I'm not going to spend too much time in this model, we'll do that more tomorrow, but what I do want to do is zoom into the space between our triggers and our beliefs. Because this is a very vulnerable space. It's a space in our minds in the sense that we're prone to being attacked. And I want you to understand what happens in this space because you know what? You can't change something that you don't know. And so understanding what happens in the space is so crucial if we're going to bring changes to how we feel and how we respond in the tensions of life. So the first thing that happens in the space is we ask why questions. Why is dad showing favoritism to my sibling and not to me? Why was I rejected by that friend? Why, why is COVID happening? Why, like, how many of you right now in your world are asking why questions? Because there's something going on in your world that you have no control over, and it feels like it's a personal attack on you. So we ask why questions. As we're asking these why questions, Thoughts start to flood our minds as to why it's happening. Now, thoughts are interesting things. You know you can't have an original thought. Thoughts are like trains pulling into a train station. You can't stop them pulling in, but you can choose what you climb on board with. Now, when it comes to thoughts, there's two, in a sense, primary emotions attached to them. They're either going to bring you life or they're going to bring you death. The only power a death thought has over you is the degree to which you agree with a thought. And so in a sense, as these thoughts come in, if you make an agreement with that thought, so let's take one of the brothers that's seeing his dad showing favoritism, and he's like, now why is dad not giving me a coat? Like, what's wrong with me? Like, maybe I'm not good enough, or maybe he's not proud of me. And so the thoughts are coming in because the enemy wants to bring destruction. I'm going to speak about that now. And so the second he agrees with that thought, it now becomes a belief and it'll have a cycle of its own. Now, the interesting thing about thoughts is that the enemy wants you to believe because Scripture tells us in Ephesians 6 verse 11 that we need to put on the whole armor of God so that we can stand up against the schemes of the enemy. Now, if any of you are into war, you would understand from a strategy perspective that there's always a scheme on how do we get, you know, how do we get somebody in trouble? It's kind of like, imagine in boxing, if someone's in the boxing ring, you're going to study this guy, and then you see, oh, this guy's, you know, had a few broken ribs, so where do you want to punch him? In the ribs, because you know that's a weak spot. The enemy is just the same. He's got schemes that he wants to use like a virus that if he kind of sets it off inside of you, it's going to have a destructive ending. And the biggest scheme of the enemy is he wants you to believe that your experiences or the behavior of others or yourself determines your value. If he can get you to believe that if somebody rejects you, it means you are unlovable, 
then he's invested a virus into you that will have a destructive path. You see, Jacob showed favoritism to Joseph. He rejected his other sons. They experienced it as rejection. And instead of challenging the dodgy parenting, they absorbed it into their identity. There's something wrong with me. If maybe you weren't selected for something or you were overlooked in a you know, kind of promotion at work, maybe it's because you are worthless. That's the kind of thought the enemy is going to throw a death thought at you. Maybe if you failed at something, the thought he's going to throw at you is something like, it's because you are worthless or you are useless. Nothing you do is ever good enough. See, he wants to turn behavior into value. He wants to turn your behavior into your identity or the behavior of somebody else. Maybe if you've been a victim to tragedy where maybe COVID's taken out a number of members of your family, the enemy that's going to lie to you, you know what, this is because God doesn't care about you. And the second you agree with it, you're in trouble. The picture I have in my mind, you know, when you watch that, like movies like Braveheart, where the enemy would come with their bow and arrows, and they would light the end of the arrow, and they would fire it into the kind of territory that they were kind of fighting against. And the objective of that is that the, they want the arrow, in a sense, to land into the thatch of the house so that it burns it from the top down. And the Bible says very clearly that the enemy shoots arrows at us, death thoughts. The intention is that he hopes that it's going to land in the thatch of your house and burn you from the top down. Because he wants to destroy identity, knowing who you are. And one of the biggest things I hear in the counseling room is that a person will experience all crazy things in life. And what they do is they don't put it in its right place. They take the dysfunction of maybe a, re a father that's rejected them or a mother that doesn't care, and they've absorbed it into who they are, believing that they're worthless, believing that they're unlovable, believing that they're not good enough. For many years, I struggled with my own sense of self-worth because of my experience of school and how I pretty much flunked it. I was a G-class kid. I talk about it in my book. You know, that's what I thought, and G didn't stand for good. <laughs> It was the lowest of the lowest ranks. And I interpreted my academic ability as my value. That I'm just a G-class kid. Who would want to listen to me? I'm not good enough. Because the enemy whispered, you know, Matt, you can't do this. You're nothing. You're just a G-class kid. How many of you have made agreements with lies that have robbed you and crippled you for many years? Tensions that you've had to play with. So how did this play out with Joseph brothers from a practical perspective? Well, when you dig into Genesis 37, there's so much that tells us about the, the kind of tense emotions that they battled with. It says that they couldn't speak a kind word to their brother, that they hated him more than ever, that they were jealous. Can you hear the intense emotions that they're feeling? And as these emotions gathered momentum, it turned into destructive behaviors. Verse 18 says they made plans to kill him. See, the problem with emotion, if plotting revenge and killing your brother is up here, it started somewhere along here and grew. And, you know, it's so easy to go, well, I don't want to kill my brother, but I do have death thoughts about him. And every depression and every anxiety started somewhere and festered. 
And if we don't take ownership of the stories we're telling ourselves and manage the tensions, and I'm going to give you the answers for that now, then we're going to find ourselves in a destructive path. You see, the reality is for these brothers, and the later says in Genesis 37 how they actually end up trafficking Joseph. And then they kind of killed a young goat, dipped the, the, the robe in, in its blood, and then sent it to the dad saying, hey, do you recognize this? And, and, and Jacob was like, that was, my, that was my boy's. And they're like, well, he's dead. And it says here, you know, Jacob tore his clothes in distress uh, and dressed himself in burlap. He mourned deeply for his son for a long time. And his family all tried to comfort him, but he refused to be comforted. I will go to my grave mourning for my son. Just imagine what the brothers who were still left behind going, but we're also your sons. Huge rejection. And he said that he would weep pretty much for the rest of his life. You see, the effects of their behavior when they were so focused in on tension led to a destructive path. What they had hoped would happen by eliminating their brother was that they would get the attention of their father, but it didn't help. Their father became locked in grief. You see, when tension becomes your truth, when tension becomes your truth, it will trigger potential destructive cycles and thoughts, emotions, and behavior that will, that will rob you. And that's the enemy going, I've planted a virus there, and it's got a destructive path. So what was Joseph's perspective in this? We've looked at it from the brother's perspective. They became zoned in on their tension. But how did Joseph process the tensions he was in? So there are three crazy spaces that Joseph found himself in. First of all, we know his brothers are hating him, not for his own, but because of his dad's favoritism. So now he finds himself chucked into a pit. They eventually sell him into slavery. He was trafficked. He was 17 years old. How do you process that as a 17-year-old? Then he finds himself kind of, he was bought by a guy called Potiphar. He works his way up into a senior position in Potiphar's house. But now Potiphar's wife kind of fancies Joseph, and she tries to seduce him three times. He knows the truth. He knows that kind of giving into that is going to be destructive for his own faith. And he rejects her. He denies her advances. But now she's pretty angry, and so then accuses him of rape so that he can get sent back to prison. I mean, there's an injustice tension there. First of all, trafficking, but not his fault. Then he's imprisoned. And then the third thing is, while he's in prison, he helps Pharaoh's chief cupbearer. And you can read the whole story to get into. I mean, they should make a series on this. Um, so, so he's helping the, uh, the Pharaoh's chief cupbearer, and he interprets this dream that comes true. And as kind of the cupbearer is released from prison, Joseph says, hey, don't forget me in here. You know, please try and say a good word and get me out. But the guy forgets about him for two years. When he was first sold into slavery, trafficked, he was 17 years old. We know that when finally he's released, he's 30. 13 years of tension. We've had two years of COVID. Let's put a perspective here. How did Joseph stay focused for 13 years of his life? That's like our entire school lifespan. <laughs> we don't see the same emotions coming out of Joseph that we did from his brothers. There wasn't, it would have been very easy to be bitter and angry at the injustice. I mean, he was doing the right 
things? How many of you feel like you've been doing all the right things from a tithing and showing you know, kindness to your neighbor, but you just feel like you've just had an onslaught of injustices thrown at you? And it's so easy to get bitter in those spaces. So what are the clues? Well, let's go to Genesis 39, verse 2, 3, 21, and 23 all give us the same thing. It says this, the Lord was with Joseph. Now, when, we are, when I say that, you might go, okay, that's cool. But, there, but there's actually so much more to this phrase because when you look at the original translation, the word Lord was written in capitals. What that means is it was the Hebrew word for Yahweh. So from their perspective, they understood that God was a covenant uh, God, that he had made a covenant promise in Genesis 12 verse 2 to Abraham saying, I'm going to make you a great nation. Now, Abraham was Joseph's great-great-grandfather because it was Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, his dad, Joseph. So what Joseph did is that he held on to truth. There was a promise that was made to his family, and he would have known about this promise, but he chose to hold on to the truth that if he was going to be made into a great nation, that he was going to have descendants that would possess the land of Canaan, then here's what Joseph did. Even though he was in slavery, tension, he held on to truth. He chose to fix his mind on the truth of the covenant promise of God, despite the space of slavery that he was in. And for me, this gives us a a kind of a nugget of truth of how do we manage our tensions when we feel like we're in a place of slavery? Because the reality is, here's the promise from God, that, you know, God, the promises of God are good, but now Joseph's in a place of slavery, tension, 13 years. How easy would it be? You know when it feels like it's just never-ending onslaught, that we kind of lose focus on anything else. We just feel like, man, we're the only one struggling. The reality is that God had a promise that he was going to make him into a great nation. You see, Joseph never focused on what was happening here. He fixed his eyes on something that was bigger. He extended his lens into truth. Genesis tells us that when God created the world, it was good. And then there was the fall, tension. No longer are the lion and the lamb friends. There's destructiveness. And this is where you and I are born into, and it's hard. But in the space, there's still truth because for God so loved the world that he gave his only son. He didn't want us to stay here forever. And this is, we weren't created for this. That's why when you find yourself in that pocket of peace, how many of you find your spirit going, yes, like you resonate with this going, I mean, I want this forever. The reason why you resonate with pockets of peace is because you were created for that. This is a reality that we've been born into, but it's not our end of our story. Because God has got eternal life for every single one of us who choose to accept truth. But this is a hard space to manage. And when we look at Scripture, it says, for example, 2 Corinthians 4.16, it says this, this is why we never give up. Because it's very easy to want to give up here, isn't it? There have been times in my life where I have just been used by people or relationships have been tough. And then even as a counselor, I just get hurtful. I want to go, oh, I'm done. 
I'm tired of always doing the right thing and being there for everybody. What about me? You know, you want to get it like mad. But it's in this, and then I go, though our bodies are dying, and there's times I've had health issues, and it's like, you know, when you get over 40, every injury from your past come back to say hello. It sucks. But anyway, though my body is dying, tension, scripture says, my spirit is renewed daily. But what do I focus on? The reality of my body that's dying is caught in the grip of death and decay. I had a lecturer once when I was at Bible college. He used to say to us, you are all decaying before my eyes. <laughs> I'd be like, oh, that sucks. But my spirit is being renewed. John 16 verse 33 says, I've told you all this so that you may have peace. Here on earth, you will have tensions and trials and COVID and sorrows. But take heart because I have overcome. Can you hear the tension and the truth? We can't eliminate tensions. Romans 7, 24 to 25. Oh, what a miserable person I am. This is Paul speaking. Other translation says, oh, what a wretched man I am. How many of you feel like that sometimes? You just feel like, oh, I've really stuffed it. Who will set me free from this life that is dominated by sin and death? Can you hear the tension? Thank God the answer is in Jesus Christ. Truth. You see, the Bible is teaching us that there are tensions, but there's also truth. And if we just fixate on, on tension, we're going to lose sight of the truth. 2 Corinthians 5 verse 1, I love this. For we know that when this earthly tent we live in is taken down, that is when we die and leave this earthly body, we will have a house in heaven, an eternal body made for us by God himself and not by human hands. Sometimes I think, you know what, life can feel like a long camping trip. And camping sucks sometimes, especially when you've got to go to the toilet three times at night and it's 500 meters away. <laughs> but when you're in camping and you know it's only for a week, you can be like, you know what? This is not my forever. I can persevere through the tension of camping because I know that I have a home to go back to. That's the truth about eternal life. This is not our forever, everybody. We have a bigger lens to hold on to that's, that we know that there's going to be a time again when the lion and the lamb are going to be friends. And there's no more tension. So what is the solution? We have to use truth to manage the tensions of life. We can't eliminate tension. We've got to manage it. And so I want to just give you some practical tools on how to do this. 2 Corinthians 10, 4 to 5 says that we need to use God's mighty weapons. What is that? What is God's mighty weapon? Because it's not a sword. It's truth. His word. Not worldly weapons to knock down the strongholds of human reasoning. Where does human reasoning happen? In your mind, okay? We've got to destroy false arguments. Where does false arguments happen? In your mind. We destroy proud obstacles that keep people from knowing God. Where does that happen? In your mind. We capture rebellious thoughts. Where does that happen? Ah, you're clocking on. And we teach them to obey Christ. So where does this need to happen? We need to, get a, we need to get into what are we thinking about. How often do you think about what you're thinking about? It starts off saying that we need to destroy and demolish strongholds and false arguments. You see, Joseph's brothers, 
they, they developed what we, what we call a stronghold of revenge. They were so fixated on the fact that they were rejected and that, that, that Joseph was the problem that they now did everything in their power to take him out, but it was destructive. The Bible says whatever your self-defensive mechanisms are of coping and surviving, because the meaning of a stronghold is, is, is anything on which we rely outside of God. So what are you relying on? What are the strongholds that have got you? Maybe it's alcoholism. Maybe it's Netflix. Maybe it's, it's, I don't know, like just anything that you can escape to that makes you feel better. Maybe it's revenge. But it's robbing you. It then says we need to capture rebellious thoughts. Do you know how many times in the counseling room I hear people say that they are so ashamed of the thoughts that go through their minds? Because what they're doing is the fact that they thought about something lustfully, that means that's who they are. But we know that that's the strategy of the enemy. What you think equals who you are, so therefore you're a slave to it. No, no, no. The Bible says we need to capture rebellious thoughts. When you look at that Hebrew word for thought in the scripture, it's naima, which means a mental thought, especially with an evil purpose. So I always teach my boys, we need to play cops and robbers. The Bible talks about being a cop to the robber of your mind. Because his job is to last steal and destroy who you are and who you know yourself to be. So how do we play cops and robbers? We need to capture a thought. Is this thought bringing me life or death? It's bringing me death. Then we need to bring it under truth. God, what do you say about me in this space? We need to seek out truth. If the band could come up, we're going to be coming into land. So how do we fix our thoughts on truth? Romans 14, 17 is a verse that I've been kind of chewing on for quite a while now. It says, for the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating or drinking. It's not about what happens in your world around you. It's about righteousness, peace, and joy. And in a sense, you can't have peace or joy if you don't understand righteousness. So what is righteousness? Righteousness is knowing about your right standing before God your position in Christ, despite the emotions, despite the tensions, doesn't matter what's going on in the world, if you have declared that Christ is your Savior, you have right standing before Him that nothing can destroy. And when you have a deep revelation of this truth lens, the fruit of that revelation is the peace and the joy that passes all understanding. You see, peace and joy is not about emotion. It's about revelation. The more I know the revelation of the truth of who I am, despite what's going on in my world, the more I can live out of a place of peace and joy. And it's in this space, when we go back to Philippians 4, remember I spoke about how sometimes how do we, how do we be full of joy in the Lord when we're going through tensions? Well, I want to read the scripture again to you. Philippians 4, verse 4, always be full of joy in the Lord. And I say it again, rejoice. How do I rejoice when I'm in tension? I fix my eyes on what's coming. That you know what? No matter what COVID throws at me, it can't take away my eternal life. Where I know, and you know what? This is like a day unto the Lord, but it's a thousand to us. It's like that. I had a friend of mine, I was the 
youth pastor to both her daughters many, many years ago, and she lost both of them in a period of four or five years. And I said to her, how many times were your daughters at sleepovers? She said, often. I said, did you grieve through the night? She said, no, I was going to fetch them in the morning. I said, exactly. You're in the night right now. But the morning is coming. And this is hard because it feels like forever. It feels like forever, doesn't it? It feels like it's never ending. But in the context from God's perspective, he's like, joy is coming in the morning. This is not your forever. We need to widen our lens and hold on to truth and manage the tensions. Don't allow tensions to become your truth. Use truth to manage them. Remember, the Lord is coming soon. Don't worry about anything. Instead, pray about everything. Tell God what you need and thank Him for what He's done. Then you will experience a peace which exceeds any understanding of the tensions that we have. And this peace will guard your hearts and mind as you live in Christ. And one final thing, fix your thoughts on what is true and honorable and right and pure and admirable. Think about things that are excellent and worthy of praise. The hardest thing when you're in the trenches of tension is to kind of lift your eyes out of that emotion. But that is going to be the hope handles that will get you out of those pits. To hold on to truth when it feels like it's so overwhelming. Won't you stand with me? My encouragement as we sing this last song, it's loaded with declarations of truth in the midst of tensions. Won't you use this worship song as a space of pouring out your emotion as you get rid of and release the tension at the same time declaring truth over your world as you fix your eyes on Christ. Amen.